last week we started looking at the actual text of Job, and we looked at the first part, one through five. We didn't quite finish. We spent a lot of time talking about how Job is both a good man and a great man. A good man being his godliness, his righteousness, that Job is the real deal. And that's the most important thing we can remember as we go throughout Job, because his friends are going to try to get us to doubt that. His circumstances are going to try to get us to doubt that. All of this stuff in Job is conspiring. Satan himself will conspire to make us doubt that Job is a godly and righteous man. But it's how the book begins, and it is the emphasis of the beginning of this book, that Job is a good man. It's also the case that Job is a great man. That is, his circumstances are favorable. He has money. He has big, happy family. He has a power in so much as political power ex exists in his situation. He has notoriety. People know of him and of his goodness, and that is greatness. He has all of the things that we would want to see a good man get. And so that's why Chris Ash calls this section a well-run world. We like it. We like to see that the good get great. We want to see righteousness rewarded, goodness rewarded, godliness rewarded. And so we love seeing the way things are at the beginning of Job. And we say to ourselves, yes, this is how the world ought to be. It shouldn't be that wicked people prosper. It should be that people like Job prosper. He is the opposite of a hypocrite. That's what we want to see met with success in a well-run world. This morning, we'll wrap that up. I want to talk just a, a few more comments about that and look at the end of the section at verses four and five, and then we'll jump into the next set of verses and learn about the heavenly council that takes place, which is the preparation for all of this getting turned upside down on its head. But uh, Justin, do you have Job one? Would you read four and five? <clears throat> the sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. We have a handful of things going on in this, in this picture of Job's life. The, the greatness is reemphasized here. Job is in the prime of his life. He has uh, a happy family of children and grandchildren and just a great family situation. He loves them. He's involved in their lives. They're involved in his life. You get the picture here of what we would call family birthday parties, that on their day, there's a big family party that's thrown and they're all together. And that feeling of a family that wants to be together and enjoys being together in a time like that. It's also a picture of Job's faithfulness to his family in the seriousness of his religion. He acts as a priest. Remember we talked about when we talked about the dating of Job that Job in addition to time-wise but also geographically he's outside of the people of Israel and the priestly system. And he functions as priest for his family. He prays for them. He makes sacrifices for them. And then you do have this one comment here, which is, is not throwaway by any means at, at the end of verse five. What 
specifically is Job concerned about with regards to his children? They may have sinned. They may have sinned. Job is concerned about the possibility that what's on the outside doesn't match what's on the inside. That in fact, how would you know if your children were religious hypocrites? It's a, it's a tough thing because especially I think with regards to parenting, we get so focused on external obedience, on seeing our children obey, that we can be a little less concerned with why they're doing it and with what's going on in the heart. There's a big difference between a child who obeys because they don't want to be punished or obeys because they want the approval of their parents and a child who obeys because obedience is the right thing to do. But what does all three of those look like on the outside? Obedience. That's pretty good, right? I think most of us are tired enough from day to day that we'll be satisfied with whatever form of obedience we can get for whatever reasons we could get. Just five minutes of obedience it would, be, would be greatly appreciated. And so Job's watchfulness... And, and again, it's no accident here because this is going to be a major theme of the book. His watchfulness over his family includes significant attention to this particular detail. Yeah, but what about their hearts? His kids have it even easier than Job has it. They have his money. They have his birthday parties. They have him praying on their behalf and being priests. These kids have a pretty good life. So when we get to the point where Satan will make the accusation with God that the only reason Job obeys you is because he has a pretty good life, that accusation may be true or not true, but the accusation is not out of place. In fact, Job is aware that that accusation could be made and possibly could even be true against any of his children. And so this is something that he pays careful attention to. Uh, Derek Thomas describes Job's house this way. He says, Job's watchfulness extends beyond himself to the needs of his family. All of this provides us with a picture of an idyllic home, a spiritual unit, and a place of training for children to grow into patterns of mature adult character. It's a community of teaching and learning about God and godliness where they are encouraged to take what they're taught seriously. Job practices what he preaches, and he practices it in front of his children. He wants them to see the realness of his faith. He wants them to see the reality of what he believes and the effect that that makes on his life. And we'll say, if you fast forward a few thousand years, we have studies from the last 25 years or so that reveal that this is the single most important predictor of whether a child who grows up in the church will stay in the church. Think about what are all the things that influence why all these children who grow up in the church are leaving the church. And so they track these kids for decades from uh, childhoods to youth groups to college to adulthood. And they, they look at which kids leave the church and which kids stay in the church. And then they try to dig deep into these lives to figure out, well, what was the difference? And by far, I mean, nothing else is even close. The number one predictor of whether or not kids will stay in the church or leave is their perception of the reality of their parents' faith. 
If they believe their parents have genuine faith, practice genuine faith, apply their faith in their lives in meaningful ways, in what they do and how they do it and what they decide, they stay in the church as adults in in exponentially larger numbers. It's just way bigger. Now, number two, incidentally, just because if you haven't read the study, you're probably curious. What is the number two factor? It's that kids would grow up having an adult in the church who is not their parent, who they love and trust. It's having a non-parent adult who loves them. Because why would you love somebody else's kid apart from Christ? I mean, it's hard enough to love your kids apart from Christ. (laughs) The idea of loving somebody else's kid must be the Holy Spirit at work, right? That's what Job's doing. Job is modeling real faith for his children. And let me make this point, because this is really important to me in just the way that I'm wired in looking at the story of Job. Job thinks that sin matters, He sacrifices on behalf of his children. He's concerned that they could bless God with their lips, but curse God in their hearts. Job takes sin very seriously. He thinks sin matters. And Job thinks that fun matters. And Job doesn't think that being serious about sin means we live these joyless, partyless, festivalless lives. He's throwing great parties everybody's having a good time. He's not even at some of these parties in the end supervising because everybody's having a good time. And that matters. It matters that he thinks both matter. It's a part of his goodness. The Lord gives us all of these great things to enjoy and cautions us to take sin seriously. And part of Job's goodness is that he does both. He's attentive to both. The one sort of shadow on this passage, and this is what John asked about last week, was this, everything's so happy and everything's so great, but then it does end in verse 5 with this little note of, yeah, unless my kids are religious hypocrites, in which case they hate God in their hearts and bad stuff's going to happen. And uh, he, he does, the author does introduce that potential shadow, but it's not because we're supposed to be particularly suspicious of Job's children. It's to show us Job's awareness of that possibility. We're not supposed to go into what happens next thinking that Job is just so happy-go-lucky that he is blindsided to the possibility that somebody could do what's good on the outside with contempt or indifference for God in their heart. Um, It's introduced in the context of Job sacrificing for his children, but it's introduced to plant the seed in our minds that this sort of false faith does exist. It's a real thing that people would have that false faith. And go back a couple verses, that is not at all what Job himself has. That, that's what we're supposed to be doing is, is sort of this, this challenge to Job's faith, even before Satan directs, directly makes it, is preempted by Job's awareness of the possibility in his own life and in the lives of his children and is willing to, to take it seriously and to take action on behalf of that. So it's introduced in a good context. When things, is Job a good man? Ask yourself this question. The, the, the passage makes it completely clear that he's a good man. We'll come to doubt this later as we read on with Job. But that's actually a really important point. 
why do we come to doubt his goodness? Well, it's because his greatness goes away. We're, we're comfortable with the fact that Job must really be a good and godly man at the beginning because everything's going great for him. God's obviously blessing him. That's a well-run world, so our minds make that connection, and we believe what the Bible says. Okay, Job is a good man. But later, when the greatness goes away, and when it looks like his life is the object of God's curse rather than God's blessing, we're going to draw the faulty conclusion of, oh, he must not have been so good after all, because if he were so good, this would not have happened. Well, that's exactly what the book of Job is going to be about, right? is, is, is breaking that uh, that connection in our mind that we think is the way things not just ought to be, but must be in God's world. And turns out that's not how they're going to be in God's world. So that's what how Job begins, is with this picture of the world as it ought to be. And many in Job's day, his friends, and still many today, are going to argue that true religion reduces trouble. And so a way that you can figure out the truth of your religion and your adherence to your religion is by looking at the circumstances of your life. And if trouble is reduced, you're on the right path. And if your life is filled with trouble, you are doing something wrong, period, full stop. There can be no other answer. And that's where the prosperity gospel comes from. <laughs> this idea that you don't have more money, you don't have better health, you don't have whatever else because of a weakness in your faith. If you had more faith, if you were better, I was going to say gooder, just to make the <laughs> analogy hold, if you were gooder, you would be greater. That's the prosperity gospel. And that's nothing new. That was at work here in Job's day as well. And, and the book of Job begins by... Um, acknowledging that connection in our minds. The book of Job begins by making us very happy. We read the first five verses and we say, yes, this is what the world would be like if I were God. Therefore, it must be right because it's what I would do. And, and it just feels good. But Job's faith, the heart of Job's faith, is fear of the Lord. We already got that a couple of verses ago. The heart of Job's faith is the recognition that Job is not God. And therefore, it's sort of open to the possibility that God might run the world in a different way than we would or than Job himself would. And so if God does something else, right now, God is giving greatness to goodness. Job's faith is all keyed up. It is ready for if God did something else and the greatness went away, Job would still be good. That sets the foundation for everything else that's going to happen in Job. We have to be absolutely convinced that Job believes it is not God who is the problem. <laughs> that when this stuff comes, his initial reaction is one of faith. God is not the problem here. My understanding, my expectation is the problem here. And so he'll be able to say lots of great faithful things that we remember. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Are we to bless God when he does good and not also when he does evil? Like Job says all these things that are good little bumper stickers for us when we suffer, but they come for Job from a very genuine belief. 
That's the same stuff he was saying here when everything was great and he was getting everything his heart could possibly desire. So that's the beginning of Job. What questions or comments do we have about that? Justin? I mean, Derek Thomas's comment maybe helps, but like I see at the end, we can't say for certain, Job, like why would he not go talk to his kids about this and start making sacrifices? Well, you assume that he did. You're right. I mean, it doesn't say that, right? Yeah, the impression we get of Job is that it was a both hand. Okay. Yeah, and I, I know that's not in the it's text. It's not fair to say he just yeah. sacrificed. No, the picture that it's trying to give us is that the environment of Job's home was both. The teaching was there and the demonstration was there, the words and the action. And that's it's a great point of um, there are certainly times where the most important thing we do for someone else and the only thing we do for someone else is just to pray for them. But we can't use just praying for them as an excuse to not ask questions and have important conversations, especially with our children, but, but really with everyone that we love. Other questions? All right, let's move on then to verses 6 and 7. I don't have my pencil, so my bad handwriting gets even worse with my finger. Uh, but we're going to talk about... <laughs> some people can't even contain how bad... We're going to talk about the heavenly council because Job is going to be a book about the glory of God. We think about Job as being a book about a lot of different things, about suffering, about trial, about the role of Satan in the world, about bad advice from friends. We have a whole list of things that we would say Job is about, but at its core, Job is a book about the glory of God. There is nothing more important than the glory of God. And that's that's a categorical shift for the fallen human mind. In fact, we cannot affirm that statement apart from regeneration. But God does not believe there is anything more important than his own glory. In fact, it would be wrong for him to do so. And that's a tough thing for us too because humans are fallible, we are fallen, we are creatures. We are utterly dependent. Humans, even the best human in the world, has all of these built-in limitations that should bring about some existential humility. I am not God. There is something greater than me on which I am completely dependent. Even if I do everything right, I still had to be created. I am still a creature. God doesn't have any of those limitations. There's no need for God to be humble. In fact, for God to be humble would be a little dishonest, wouldn't it? Like, we have to be humble because we have a lot to be humble about. That's one of my favorite uh, Dick DeWitt lines is that, I don't know who he got it from, but it's one of my mentors. He said, he's a very humble man, and he has much to be humble about. <laughs> we do have a lot about which to be humble. Uh, Dick would never have let have ended a sentence with a preposition the way I just did. <laughs> uh, we do have a lot about which to be humble. God does not. And so for God to claim that he is something less than infinite, something less than perfect, something less than holy, something less than omniscient, something less than omnipotent, is not true. So it's this kind of 
weird situation where humility for God is wrong, which means what God should be most concerned about, what God must be most concerned about is what? Which, yes, that's a great way to say it. Staying true to himself, which is glory. Putting himself as the pinnacle of everything, which for a human to do, again, is repulsive to us. Like we, That idea is so grained in our mind that that is, that is noxious to see somebody who's all about their own glory. But that's because they don't deserve it. God deserves all the glory. And so that's what Job is about, this, this idea. There's nothing more important than God's glory. And that's why in the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, when it talks about the reason we exist, it uses the language of man's chief end. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever because God is so gracious and good that he's orchestrated the world that our glorifying of him is joy and that we will actually find joy in it rather than just lifeless drudgery or, or burden. There's joy to be found in his glory, but his glory is more important than your joy. His glory is most important and that is his primary aim. So we can agree with this, but the, the emotional brutality of the book of Job is seeing what that looks like in practice. What does it look like in a world? We love, well, my other slide, we love to look at a well-run world. What does it look like in a world where God's glory matters more than everything else? Sometimes it will look like if you're gooder, you get greater. Sometimes it may not. But God's glory is still going to be primary. And that's going to be tough for us. That is tough stuff. It's easy to say God's glory is most important. It is very hard to be content and humble and happy and to give our approval to a world where God's glory is at the center. Because we look at it and say, that's not the way I'd run the world. Why? Because you put your glory at the center. That's what it'll come down to whose glory should be at the center of the world. And God says his, and he's got pretty good reason to say that. And we say ours, and we don't have such good reason to say that. That's where we're headed. So when we left Job, uh, all was great. Job was good. Things were as they should be. And then in these verses in six and seven, we get some alternating scenes, four alternating scenes. Well, not just these two verses. We're going to get four alternating scenes in the next part of the passage. Two in the spiritual realm and two on earth. And these four scenes will turn everything that we liked about the first five verses on its head. Everything that we approved of in that world is about to go away. And we're about to get a world that is not a well-run world in our estimation because of what happens in these four scenes. Right now, verses one through five, in that world, it could seem to us like what God is asking of Job is easy. That's the accusation Satan will make. You'll get great, just keep being good. I'm kind of like, yeah, I mean, I think I could probably pull that off. Now, newsflash. 
you still wouldn't pull that off. If God gave you a blessing, if he gave you a, a grown-up treat every single time you obeyed him, you still would disobey him. You would still sometimes say, Meh, I got a lot of treats. This looks like some fun. Let me dive into this sin. Right? That's the fallen human heart. But we say to ourselves, no, no, Paul, that's not true. If I received clear blessing and direction from the Lord every time I did good, my life would overflow with good. Look how good I would be. I'd be like Job. Right? No, you're lying. Um, be good and get great. Seems really easy. What will be asked of Job next is something very, very different from that calculation. And it has a really important connection to Christ. Who did I give Philippians to? Nick, would you read Philippians 2, 6 through 11? All right. Who taught he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The exaltation of Christ is the world as we think it ought to be, right? Christ is glorified and exalted for who he is. What's the humiliation of Christ? Doesn't seem like the world as it ought to be, does it? <laughs> Does it? Christ sets aside the glory of which he is worthy, the glory that he has shared with the Father and the Spirit from before all worlds. He sets it aside and does this thing that seems insane. The humiliation, taking on sin, dying for his enemies, standing in, in today's text, standing there in front of Pilate, and getting a lecture on what kingship looks like from that clown. There's a picture of what Christ is being asked to do, so to speak, in what Job will now be asked to do. The connection's going to be broken of what glory to God really looks like. And it's not going to look the way that we often think it does or should. The Jews thought the way God should be glorified, what that would look like was palm branches laying down on a road, crying out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They thought what it looked like after that would be the overthrow of the Roman government and the reestablishment of them in the land. What did the glory of God actually look like? The betrayal and the arrest and the conviction and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ most glorious events that have ever happened on this earth that give way to the resurrection. So there's an important connection to Christ here. At the beginning of these events, these back and forth between the heavenly and the earthly realms, before we see what's going to happen to Job, we are let in. So that's an important thing to, to think about, is that we will get more information in the book of Job than Job himself or any of his friends have because of what we're about to read. They don't know this heavenly council took place. We do. 
The author includes that for our understanding. So we get a little bit of visibility into what's happening here that the characters in the story aren't going to have. We're let in on an event. And it appears to be a kind of routine event in the heavens. Megan, can you read verses 6 and 7? Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Okay, there's a lot of strangeness in here so far. <laughs> we got to stop and figure out what in the world is happening. There's some sort of divine council, some kind of heavenly cabinet meeting where the, the senior staff has gathered to talk about the day and the plan for the week. And there's actually other language like this in the Bible. There's very similar language of this in the Psalms. Who has Psalm 82? Did you read verse 1 and verse 6? God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods who holds judgment. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. So not only is there this picture in the Psalms of this heavenly council, but God uses the language of God's, lowercase g, for the heavenly creatures that are assembled before him. Uh, Psalm 89, 6 and 7. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. So the council of the holy ones, heavenly beings, this lowercase g, gods. The Bible uses lots of language that doesn't mean God with a capital G but is making it clear to us that these are not humans. <laughs> these are creatures, but they're more than humans. They're creatures that don't have limitation, the limitations that humans have. Still creatures, still with some limitations, but not human limitations. And there's these, this picture of these council meetings where the creatures are summoned to present themselves before God and to give some kind of an account for their area of oversight, <laughs> for the thing that they're responsible for taking care of. So if you ever watched the uh, the West Wing, you know, they would have the morning senior staff meeting where everybody gathers, gathers around the president for a brief meeting and reports on the area that they're supposed to be in charge of. A lot of my clients in the business world, we practice what's called a daily huddle. It's just a 10 minute phone call at the beginning of every day where everybody on the team goes through and tells you what are the three most important things that I'm doing today. And it's a chance for everybody to sync up and get that clear. And it's a chance for the leader to know what's going on and to make sure that people are, are doing the right things and headed the right direction. And that's the picture that we're given here. That's very important to understand. This is anthropomorphic language. This is not that God actually has a long wooden conference table at which he sits and he summons the angels around him and they give their reports and file their paperwork and make sure that they file duplicate and triplicate copies with the home office. It's, it's human type language that doesn't apply to God literally, but it's used this way to, to give us the form. The actual form that this takes is not within our grasp. This is not something that we're going to comprehend how this happens. Does it happen in space? I don't know. Does it happen in time? I don't know. I don't know. 
I'm not supposed to know. What I need to know is conceptually, hey, you know that thing that happens sometimes where a boss gets all the underlings around them and they report on what they're doing? This is that kind of thing. Oh, okay. I can understand that. And the underlings who are reporting to God are not humans in this case. They are creatures, but they are divine creatures. They are supernatural, spiritual type creatures. And that's the concept that you're supposed to understand. Okay, so we needed to study that a little bit to figure out what's going on. But now we're good. We have a senior staff meeting with God and all of his people. Except we're not good with this. Because there is one detail that feels like a major problem. What is the problem here? Why is Satan at this meeting? Who invited him? Who in the world invited Satan to the senior staff meeting? And the answer is terrifying. Who invited Satan to the senior staff meeting? God. God. Welcome to the book of Job. Really. That is that is an important thing to get in our brains. Who invited Satan to the senior staff meeting? God, welcome to Job. Because this is what's going to drive us nuts about Job. Why does God do any of this? And why does he do it the way he does it? The answer is going to be his glory. And our response is going to be, yeah, that's not a very good way to do it, God. It's really not a well-run world anymore if Satan has a seat at the table at your senior staff meeting. I I don't want to be too judgy. I know that you're God. I I get it. But a pro tip. I'm a highly paid consultant. (laughs) Don't put Satan at your conference table. You're welcome. And that's what we feel inside. And that's what we're going to feel all throughout the book of Job. Why in the world would God do this? We need to understand, let's do just a little bit of understanding about sort of Satan and these heavenly creatures, just making sure that we put them in their place and their proper context, because there's really three models in all the religions of the world and all of the worldviews. There's really three models for understanding how everything exists and is governed. And I won't linger too long on these, but I do think it's important that we think through the implications of each one, even if we don't memorize the terms. So the first term we're very familiar with is polytheism. The the idea of the governance of the universe in polytheism is that there are lots of gods and no supreme god. That's a critical distinction. Lots of supernatural beings, none of which is solitary and is supreme. It usually takes the form of a dualism, which is that you've got a permanent contest of equal and opposite sides, a really strong good side, whether that's one God or many, a really strong evil side, whether that's one God or many, and and they're constantly waging war with each other, and that's why sometimes when the good people are winning, good things are happening, and sometimes when the bad side is winning, bad things are happening, and that's kind of the way the world works. They're always battling for supremacy and control. If you think that Satan has power outside of God, if you think that Satan can act completely independently of God, you're a dualist. That, that's the logical conclusion. You're a dualist. I, 
I mean, I'm not making fun of you. I'll have some questions for you later if you're a member, because that's probably an issue with the, with the membership vows. Um, but just putting a label on it, if you believe Satan has that kind of power independent of derived power from God, you're a dualist. That's polytheism. That's a view that Satan is his own God-like apart from what God is. That's not what scripture teaches. Another view is what's called monism, uh, like mono, monism. And this is the view that the world is governed by the direct, what philosophers call simple control of a single sovereign. There is only one supernatural power and everything flows directly, one-to-one -one relationship from him and his power. Everything that happens, he does directly. No means, no intermediaries, direct action always on everything that happens. And a lot of people think that that's Christianity, and it's not. That's Islam. That's what Islam believes about how God acts, is his power is manifest directly in everything that happens. Either God is working or we are working, but not both. And so we can work with God's purposes. We can work against God's purposes, but God's purposes cannot work through us. That's not how God works in Islam or in, in any uh, monism view. The biblical model is more complicated, of course. It's more complex. It's that there's an absolute sovereign God. He is unequaled. He has no rival. But that his governance of the world involves means. He uses supernatural means other than himself. He uses what we would call natural means. God acts through a lot of means in the world. It's the exception rather the rule than the rule when God acts directly on his creation. Some nearly 100% number of the time is God acting through means. And some of these means are supernatural, supernatural beings other than himself. And some of those are evil. <laughs> That's going to be tough. <laughs> that God, um, what does is, what is John 12, 31 call Satan? The ruler of this world. What does Ephesians 2, 2, Paul calls Satan? The prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience. Whoa, now we got a really multi-leveled thing happening here. The sons of disobedience are working, but it's actually the prince of the power of the air who's working through them, but it's actually God who is working through the prince of the power of the air who's working through the sons of disobedience to bring about all things unto his purposes because that's what happens in a world where God's glory is at the center of it. Everything will work to his purposes. That's why we can actually believe Romans 8.28 and not just smile at Romans 8.28 like, yeah, I kind of hope that's true. Nope, that's the way it has to be. Because in a world where God's glory is at the center, everything will ultimately work for his purposes. And he's told us that his purposes for those whom he loves is to save them and to glorify them in his son. So everything will work to those purposes because that glorifies him. Everything? Even the things evil people do? Yep. Even the things evil people do because evil spirits lead them to do it? Yep. 
Who's at the top of that food chain? God, working about his purposes. God's sovereignty is not compromised over this, but his sovereignty governs through a very complex model that we can't wrap our minds around and we get really angry and, and hand-fisty, shaky at God because we say either we're completely free or God is to blame and there can't possibly be another solution here. It cannot be the case that God is both sovereign and we are free and that we're responsible for our actions and that some of those actions are evil, but that God didn't do the evil. That just can't work. Except bad news, guys. That's exactly what the Bible says. It's, it's how it says it does work. You're like, well, tell me how that happens. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how the math or the science or the waves or the philosophy works. I'm too dumb. But God says all of those things. So if I submit myself to the word of God, it's the way it is. I can work on trying to understand it. I will mention the handful of people in the Bible who work really hard on trying to understand it. They went nuts. Job at the end here of this book, Solomon and Ecclesiastes, they went nuts. So tread lightly on the going too deep down this path. It seems to have an effect. God's purposes, via Satan, via unbelievers, doing the unbelievers' will, because they're doing what they want to do, doing Satan's will, because Satan wants them to do this evil, are all doing God's will to bring about a purpose that is very much against their purposes, and they're responsible for the evil and God is not. And God is responsible for the outcome, the glorious outcome, which glorifies himself and those he loves. It's complicated. Some of it's easier for us, right? Governance is not fellowship or approval. We, we get that concept. The fact that God has someone under his rule doesn't mean that he approves of everything that they do. What do people put on their Twitter profiles now? Retweet does not equal endorsement. <laughs> God doesn't approve. I'm really glad Satan did that. I hope more terrible stuff happens to Job. That's not a, a fellowship or approval. God has no fellowship with evil. But he absolutely uses it in this governance of the world. And he doesn't use it. This is hard for Christians. He doesn't use it in a reactionary way. God is not unsure about the evil people will commit. And then when they commit it, he looks around and he says, hmm, how am I going to turn that one into some good? That is not a sovereign God. That is a, that is a tired God who has to react all the time to what humans are doing. That's not what the Bible says about God. So are you saying that um, God is controlling the evil things that people do. Controlling is a tough word. Yes, I'm trying to so let me let me let me make a couple allowing. more. Yeah, let me make a couple more statements. It's more than allowing. It's right. far more than allowing. Yeah, so let, let me say a couple more things, and then we'll we'll see if we can get clarity. God is ultimately responsible for Job's suffering. Let's sink in. God is ultimately responsible for Job's suffering. If God. did not desire, God has a few different types of desire, um, but if God did not, at least in one sense, desire for Job to suffer, he would not suffer. If that were God's strongest, try, again, we're going to speak anthropomorphically. We're going to talk about God as if he were a human for a minute. 
If what God wanted most was for Job not to suffer, would Job suffer? No. God gets what he wants most. Anything less, he stops being God. So what does God want most? His glory. His glory, which means in this case, Job suffers. That's, that's the connection. Okay, so, jo so God made Job suffer. Yes. God is ultimately responsible for Job's suffering. Yes. God is responsible for the evil which brought about Job's suffering. Oh, no. No. The way God governs the world is such that people who do evil things to Job, Satan who influences people to do evil things to Job, or in this case, Satan who just directly does evil things to Job, they're doing exactly what they want to do. They have a meaningful choice and they choose evil. And in God's economy of eternity, it serves his purpose of glorifying himself through Job's suffering. It's really important that we not, whatever other way you would want to try to describe this, because again, if I could describe it perfectly, I could explain it perfectly and none of this would be hard. So in your brain, you need different words to, to wrap your mind around it. That is totally okay. But ask yourself about the words you use. Is God reacting? Because if God is reacting, your view is wrong. God doesn't have to react. He is not caught off guard by evil. He is not surprised by sin. He does not have to wait and see. I know how I'm going to accomplish it. I've kind of laid out the big rocks. And then I got to move around these smaller rocks in the middle as people make their decisions to figure out how I'm going to get what I want in the end. That is not how God works. That's actually a heresy called open theism, which is that God doesn't know the future for sure. He can be pretty sure. He can want it really strongly. But he can't know because if he knew, then everything would already be determined. We'd be puppets. And, and we'd just be playing out the video game simulation. And they're so afraid of that, that they have to run to, well, then God can't be that kind of sovereign. Uh, again, these are tough things. God does not entice us to sin, but he does test us. And that is, he doesn't put us in a situation, and I'll say this in the sermon too, he doesn't ever put us in a situation where we have to break his law. He does not ever put us in a situation where we have to sin in order to accomplish some good. That is never the case. We like to love to make excuses that it is the case, but it is not. But God will put us in lots of situations where it is not easy to believe him or to trust him. That's what it means when we say that God tests us or our faith is tested. We're in a situation where it's not easy to believe him, where we're in a situation where it doesn't seem that great will come from good. That if we do good, what is right, what is godly, we will get a great, happy, joyful, blessed result. And that's really the test of the Christian life is I know what I ought to do, but I don't trust God enough to believe that if I do it, it will be better 
than if I didn't do it. And so we go our own way. That's why we make our own decisions. And God's working all of that about for his purposes. But we are very meaningfully choosing between obedience and disobedience. And it's a, it's a question of uh, how much, not, not how much, because it's binary in that moment, do we believe God or not? When you say, I believe God a little bit, I'm going to push back on you and say, I'm not talking about your whole life. In this one moment, this one situation, you either believe God or you don't. It's, it's really binary. So which is it? Well, a lot of times by my action, what I proclaim is I don't believe God. Because if I believe God, I would trust what he says to be good. <laughs> and instead, I hear what God says. God, I see what that would look like. I don't think you factored in all the things here. I don't think you see the world as clearly as I see the world. I don't think you understand human nature quite the way I do. So I'm going to do it my way. Totally turn out better, okay? How's that work? We'll quote Derek Thomas again. He says, there will be times when it is difficult to believe that God is gracious. There will be times when faith will be stretched to the limits. There will be times when the love of God is veiled and obscured. And these are moments that God has brought about himself. He may ultimately use Satan in the process, but it comes from him. Key line. Listen carefully. Remember it forever. Our suffering is at the hands of of one who loves us, not one who despises us. We look at suffering and we say, nobody who loves us would make this happen. We just can't fathom. Somebody who loves us only does good things. But of course, that's not how we approach parenting. Right? We understand in that context that sometimes the suffering, the short term, brings about the longer term good or the greater good, the bigger good, in this case, the glory of God good, the greatest good. And so when we go through our suffering, this whole book is going to challenge us to think suffering represents God's despising us rather than God loving us. And we're supposed to see from the beginning, no, that's not the connection between good and great. That's not the connection between the love of God and circumstances. Our suffering comes at the hands of one who loves us. And that's going to be really hard. Um, it, it, you know, it's going to feel like Stockholm Syndrome sometimes. <laughs> We're supposed to love and, and affirm this one who brings a bunch of bad stuff into our lives. You know, it also in the real world brings the thought of someone who is, um, is abusive to someone and does it out of love, they say. You know, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. What we will be forced to reckon with is who is God? Because you're right. Every connection we make, every takeaway we try to draw from Job, we are first going to filter through what we know about humans, what we are like, what we would do, what it would mean for a human to act this way. And what we're supposed to see from this heavenly council is dealing with humans. We're dealing with the supreme God of the universe who works through means, supernatural and natural means, and all of it serves his glory. 
So what do we believe about God? This is why I say so often, when my heart is the furthest from God, because of my circumstances, because of my own sin, when I feel like God has abandoned me, the solution that works for me is to study the attributes of God, is to study again, who is God? Who does God say that he is? Because once I'm reminded of who God is, then I'm way more inclined to believe that God's actually doing something a lot better than what I'm accusing him of or what I fear. A lot of times it's my fear. Yeah. So, yeah, in that line, the suffering line that, that Thomas said, or Derek Thomas said, it's very easy uh, for me to, in the midst of suffering, try to be a stoic because it's for the glory of God. And... <laughs> I think it's a mistake to do that. Like, you're supposed to feel the suffering. You're not supposed to try to swallow that. Any, any approach to the Christian life that is predicated on setting aside emotions, not for the purpose of straightening out truth to then inform our emotions, but any approach to the Christian life that simply sets aside emotions to never pick them up again is a subhuman approach to the Christian life. God wanted computer program androids to glorify him. He would have made them instead. But he made us and he painted a rich picture of human emotions within us. They need to be informed by truth. Sometimes we do have to set them aside so that we can reorient to the truth, so that then we can have proper emotions. But any, any approach to the Christian life that just says, don't feel, just think, is not a Christian approach to the Christian life. Yeah. Couldn't have I mean, God asks us to yeah, how, how could you bear one another's burdens if you think, what are you whining about? Not so bad. <laughs> So by the way, if you feel that way about my burdens, you're welcome to take on all my burdens. If you don't think mine are that bad, I will gladly give them to you, right? Yeah, uh, a lot of times, I mean, it's not called, let it roll off your back, you know. It's, yeah. uh, there's a lot of that, I think. Some of the pep talks, are. yeah. We yeah. give a lot of pep talks. Yeah. And, you know, we don't want to go around being word Nazis where we argue with people when they're trying just to be encouraging. <laughs> but it can be really helpful to ask people to think about what they're saying. You know, any any attempt at sympathy that begins with, well, at least shut up. Yeah, right. <laughs> Stop talking. Stop with the talking. If your response is, well, at least you talk. Yeah. All right, we're done. Thanks.